Welcome to High Heels in Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. Hello, this is producer Ryan Kulik presenting the second part of Marianne Christie's conversation with Republican nominee for the 9th District of Ohio congressional seat, J.R. Majewski. The interview was done in one sitting, but we wanted to split it up to give people the opportunity to get to know Jr. and then get to know his views on a few of the more current issues and things like that. So without any further ado, I give you Marianne Christie and Republican candidate for Congress, J.R. Majewski. The infrastructure bill was passed and has a major impact with roads and bridges, especially in your area. What can you do to make sure that the 9th Congressional District gets its fair share of the finances? Well, I think the the responsibility and the obligations of a representative is to be in close contact with the local municipalities throughout the district and understanding what troubles that they have and being their bridge, their communication bridge to Washington, D.C. So when initiatives come up like this, where the government wants to invest in the infrastructure of states like Ohio and the 9th District, then it needs to be I mean, it will be my responsibility to be very, very in tune with the condition of the roads, conditions of the bridges, and ensure that that we're getting our fair and equitable share of any of that grant money. But I think what's even more important is that our federal government puts checks and balances in place, such that communities that like Toledo and, and others that have been historically ran by Democratic leadership aren't spending this money frivolously. This money is actually getting spent and being used efficiently and actually repairing the roads and bridges that it's intended to, to, to repair. Because I can tell you, every other year in the 9th District, you know, it seems like they're doing construction, and then you know the year later, there's potholes all over the place. So they're either not doing their construction as efficiently as possible, or maybe they're not getting enough money to execute. I don't know, but yep. I plan on doing a lot of digging when I get into, in, into office and solving complex problems and complex issues. Now, this is in my wheelhouse. This is what I do in the nuclear power industry. And I can tell you that some of the problems that I've dealt with in the nuclear industry far surpass the complexity of problems I'm going to have to deal with here in the ninth district. And I would say I'm a heck of a lot more prepared than anybody that's in local office, even Marcy Kaptur. So. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, down in Cincinnati, we've had this Brent Spence Bridge. I've traveled that quite and- significantly, yeah. And year after year, at last, we think we're going to a second bridge. Mm-hmm. They're not going to replace that bridge. They're just going to build another bridge. Anyhow, let's hit upon a topic that is somewhat controversial. Wounds of the 2020 election and the Capitol January 6th event that follow still runs deep here in this country. What impact do you think it will play in the 2022 midterm election? Well, I think that the January 6th events that happened, and I can tell you, I was in D.C. on January 6th, and in reflection, I can tell you that that was one of the greatest mornings I've ever had in my life, but it was one of the worst afternoons I'd ever had, too. Really? Why do you say that? Because I I witnessed a bunch of uh, extremely emotional people, somewhat jaded people suffering from groupthink. And I also witnessed the Capitol Police Force at the building and local law enforcement not necessarily handle a situation or even face a situation that they've never even experienced before, or maybe their training wasn't prepared for. I watched people do things that probably they normally wouldn't do. I watched police and law enforcement 
handle situations in a way that they probably normally wouldn't handle. And I watched people go into the Capitol building and some, in some cases they were let into the Capitol building. I mean, there's so many different paradigms that, that are involved with the story, but at the end of the day, both the people that were there that decided to break the law and trespass and go into the, the Capitol building and the police that encouraged it. I mean, they're all guilty at, at some point, but I really think that where we've seen the failure is in our Congress. I say that because we're finding out today through documentaries such as Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Mules and other independent organizations, people like Mike Lindell that have spent millions of dollars and countless hours auditing and, and looking through the election of 2020. And there was, a, a, in my opinion, a very pristine opportunity of time where both parties in the Senate could have slowed down just a little bit and put in a little bit more due diligence and potentially come to a realization on whether or not the election was or was not stolen. Yeah, I still believe it was today. And so do many Americans and the and those of us that believe it feel disenfranchised. We feel as if we were pushed off to the side, caused, you know, called, called names by the Democratic Party, like conspiracy theorists and extremists. I mean, even though I, for example, even though I went to Washington, D.C., I didn't break any laws. I didn't enter the building. I didn't even have physical contact with anyone other than a hug and a handshake. But since the day I've gotten home until today. I've been labeled as an insurrectionist. I've been labeled as, you know, you name it, all of the derogatory terms that come with just going to Washington, D.C. and supporting my favorite president and being there as a as a solid conservative and supporting our free and fair election, what I thought was our free and fair election. And for that, I've been labeled and probably will be labeled for the rest of my life because the the Internet doesn't die, you know, and, and, and so, you know, it's it's unfair. It's extremely unfair. And I think that unfairness is going to echo through the midterms. It's being my uh, attendance in D.C. on January 6th is being used against me right now by Marcia Kaptur. They're still calling me an insurrectionist. And like I said, I didn't break any laws. I've been cleared by the FBI. I took a bunch of Vietnam and Korean war vets to Washington, D.C. to see a memorial that they had never seen. And, you know, I felt very, very proud of myself and my friends and the the money we were able to raise to take people that were less fortunate to Washington, D.C. Very, very proud. And that was stripped away from me by a party that is willing to do whatever they, they can to ruin the credibility of others just because they think just because guys like me supported Donald Trump. And it's yeah. terrible. But do you, what kind of an impact do you think they'll play in November, the election? It's I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't think it's going to have the impact in November as much as it's going to have in, in 2024. I think yeah. the I think all of this is going to really be I think it's going to ride along with the presidential election. I'm not too not too sure that it's going to stick around for the midterms, but it might. And I think we'll find out if we have any close elections, you know, if we have any like we just had in Pennsylvania with the Senate race. There's going to be, from what I understand, a recount. Um, To me, it should put these uh, board of elections on their toes and they should be working to, you know, their utmost level of of excellence. And we should expect that from everyone that that, that, that participates. But when you talk about kind of a a question about the result of an election, Mm -hmm. you were the last person in the world in the ninth district that they ever thought was going to win. Sure. 
Sure. And yet you won. Mm-hmm. You bet you won over two state legislators, yeah. one a state senator. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is why it grabbed national attention. Sure. And I think it's interesting to see what you feel you can accomplish. In yeah. you. you feel that your belief, your way, moving slightly away from that, you and your wife live mm-hmm. there in uh, well, Port Clinton. Port Clinton. Mm-hmm. You also made national news in 2016 when you painted your backyard with 19,000 square feet with a Trump sign. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so, um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I decided it was actually 2019. Um, was it two years yeah. later? Okay. Yeah, so 2019, I support a veterans organization. Actually, just 2019, I painted the, painted the world's largest Old Glory flag in my lawn. I did so because I lost a bet with a veterans organization that I support. And we every year I have a big 4th of July party with fireworks and all my friends come over. I have maybe 150, 200 people at my house. And a veterans organization that my wife and I support made a bet with them. They were trying to raise enough money so they could take a, uh, a gentleman that was wounded in the war in Iraq out on a deer hunting trip in southern Ohio in uh, McConnellsville, I believe it was, they were able to raise the money to take him hunting. And in celebration of that, I painted the flag and had the really big uh, 4th of July party. And then in 2020, we were going to do the same thing over again. I decided that, uh, well, at first I was going to paint the POWMIA flag. And the company that I buy the paint from, I buy this uh, athletic turf paint that's environmentally safe, because I live on the water table and numerous other things. But uh, as a nuclear guy, I'm extremely conscious of the environment. But I bought the paint from a sports turf paint company in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, they called me right before I was going to start painting the POWMI flag. They told me that if I was to paint my lawn black, I would essentially destroy almost all of my topsoil and my wife would be mad at me and I'd probably be in trouble. So um, we had to recover. And how we recovered was we were looking for something that we could paint red, white, and blue because the year before I did the old glory flag. And the first thing that came to mind was the Trump 2020 campaign logo. And so that's what we did. Yeah, we made national news for that. Uh, I was on Fox and Friends with um, all my friends and my neighbors. President Trump saw me on TV, sent a tweet out shortly thereafter. This is my first uh, opportunity to meet with President Trump, and and I've gotten to know him quite well and his team, and uh, it's been a really, really nice and uh, friendly relationship. So it uh, emboldened and, and strengthened the support I already had for him was, you know, went through the roof after that. Okay, well, let's, you're, this whole interview kind of keeps going around your relationship with the military. Mm-hmm. You talk about your time in the military and mm-hmm. your reasons for painting and mm-hmm. raising money. Mm-hmm. It's always with the military. So is this really kind of your background? I mean, we all have, a, you know, an, an interest in certain groups. Yeah. This I, is I, I just have, you know, most of my friends here in Northwest Ohio didn't necessarily serve with them in the armed forces. But I've become friends with them since, and our I would say our bonds have strengthened because we have, uh, you know, a brotherhood and a, and a camaraderie, and we have a, a military career that we can all kind of reflect on and, and discuss. And there's so many unwritten and unspoken codes in the service, 
And you spent four years mm-hmm. in the Air Force. Yeah. I think we have to bring that up. Yeah, I did. And you you were what in Iraq or in, I was in I Afghanistan. Think? Yeah, All right. yeah. It was you know the military. I can say was some of the. It was probably the toughest four years of my life because I'm a kid that was you know raised in the inner city of Toledo, and uh, you know I was used to kind of doing whatever I wanted, and I did come from a tough family. My parents were not scared to discipline me. Growing up where I grew up, I had access to other people that and other kids that got in a lot of trouble. And my father's expectations for me uh, were to stay out of trouble and become a uh, an adult that was well-mannered and contributed back to society. And I wasn't ready for that. Yep. I wasn't ready for that. And my dad was not afraid to dust my pants when they were they were needing to be dusted. And when he decided that he was going to move to Port Clinton after retiring from Toledo Jeep, I was given a, a 30-day window of either going to college, joining the military, or getting a full-time job. And I failed to do all of them. And the military was the one thing that I knew I could go do pretty rapidly. It was the choice that I ended up making. Yeah, but and, you were uh, just an 18-year-old young man, yeah, yeah. and you spent... You know, the next four years Overseas. seeing things, probably at times that you wish you had never seen. Yeah. And yeah. that's why this relationship with the other people in the military takes precedent. Because instead of four years in a college and uh, the fraternity right. life, you have your four years yeah. in the United States Air Force. Yeah. And I thank you for that, oh, you're very JR. That, I really appreciate that. Because it really is. I, I really think how an 18-year-old young man has to you know, serve and see things. And it leaves an impression for the rest of your life. It does. It does. And for me, I can tell you that the military taught me immediate discipline. I did have discipline, but, it, you know, from... Being disciplined from your family is different than being disciplined from an organization like the United States Air Force or the military in general. And I had to grow up really quick. I couldn't call mom to do my laundry. I couldn't ask dad to fix the car. You know, I had to learn those things on my own. You would think that, oh, it's easy, but it's it's not. Not when you're, you know, overseas. I mean, my first duty station was in Okinawa, Japan. So I wasn't even stateside. So, you know, that made it even tougher. And you know, the things you deal with in the service, being away from home. And it was, it was tough, but I persevered. And I'm, I'm thankful that I'm thankful that my dad made me make those hard choices because it prepared me for even harder choices later in life. Yep. Life has a way of de- making demands on every right. one of us. I don't care who you are. That's right. Something will happen. All right, JR, as we're coming to the end of this, you're heading for a general election in November. Mm-hmm. And how can listeners contact you to learn about your campaign and to make donations? Well, the easiest way to find me is on all forms of social media. I can either be found at J.R. Majewski or J.R. Majewski for Congress. That's my uh, handle. Um, either one of those, usually what I use. And then um, my website is J.R. Majewski. It's M-A-J. E-W-S-K-I, the number four, congress.com. And an easy way to donate is J-R-F-O-R-O-H-I-O.com. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sherrod Sate. 
subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.